Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Madeline Murray O'Hare, an infamous atheist, disappeared, along with two members of her family, in October 1995. When a person disappears without a trace, often the most critical information is hidden in their actions and words from the days before they vanished. The last known whereabouts of the three O'Hares may hold the clues to what happened to them. Madeline Murray O'Hare was a fearless iconoclast. You're dealing with a very stubborn woman, and I'm going to tell it to you whether you like it or not. Who eagerly took on the establishment. She was very, very intelligent, but she was also a very confrontational woman. You will not continue to talk during Yes, ma'am, I will. Please leave the council chamber. She had many admirers. Don't touch me. But many more enemies. She was a fiery person. She did not have a problem with getting in somebody's face. Let's let them have their ticky-tacky Jesus Christ. Have you seen it? It's gringy and cheap. People were either fond of her or they hated her. When she inexplicably disappears with two members of her family, rumors flew. The conventional wisdom was that they had probably run off with almost half a million dollars of atheist funds. It almost looked like the perfect plan, but no matter who you're looking for, rich or poor, infamous or not, people make the same mistakes. Has she fled with ill-gotten riches? Or has a rival found vengeance? You're dealing with a couple of pit bulls. If you slap one in the face, they're gonna bite you. And finally silenced her. I would describe him as a psychopathic killer. A four-year investigation uncovers a story that is truly stranger than fiction. An atheist is a person who questions every kind of authority. Because if we can question the ultimate authority, God, who must be obeyed, we can question anything. In 1995, the outspoken atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare suddenly leaves town, along with her son, John Murray, and her granddaughter, Robin. 
The three have been running American Atheists, a nonprofit group based in Austin, Texas. In late August, John leaves a cryptic note for the staff, saying that they have been called out of town on an emergency. Didn't say where they were going, what they were doing, or when they were coming back, except for the fact that it might take about two weeks. That's it. But the timing of the O'Hare's departure is odd. Five million people are expected to turn out to see Pope John Paul today in New York City. The city Madeline, Robin, and John were in the midst of organizing a protest of the Pope's visit to New York City. The future of the world. A couple of times I thought to myself, this doesn't seem right. But then I thought to myself, what am I going to do about it? I don't know where they are. I have no idea what they're doing. What am I supposed to do? Inexplicably, the O'Hare's out-of-town emergency grows to four weeks. During that time, atheist staff members periodically call the O'Hares, reaching them on John Murray's cell phone. But the O'Hares never reveal where they are or what they're doing. And again, they were reassuring that everything was okay, so okay. And you know, some people thought this is not right. What's going on? This is weird. Then, starting on September 29th, calls to John Garth's phone go unanswered. A week later, when the O'Hares failed to show up in New York for the Pope protest, American atheists feared the worst. We realized that they had completely disappeared, and then we were quite suspicious uh, that something terrible had happened to them. Madeline Murray O'Hare, a personality known around the world, and two family members have dropped off the radar. Do we feel that our movement for separation and our movement for recognition of atheism has a prayer? We do not. As the godmother of American atheism, Madeline Murray O'Hare had no shortage of enemies. All Christians are rude, intolerant, insulting. In 1964, Life magazine dubbed her the most hated woman in America. Her rise to infamy began just the year before in Baltimore, Maryland. In Baltimore, each school day had begun with the reading of Bible verses and recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Until 1963, Madeline Murray O'Hare was a completely unknown Baltimore housewife, but she had taken issue with uh, her son being required to attend prayers and Bible readings in the public schools in Baltimore, so she filed a lawsuit Today, the United States Supreme Court ruled that it violates the Constitution to require reading the Bible or reciting prayers as a religious exercise in public schools. Well, this came as a tremendous shock to most of America, and it instantly put Madeleine Murray O'Hare in the cultural spotlight, which she relished. I don't care whether I succeed or whether I fail as long as I'm trying. I hope that I succeed. What was difficult was being an out-of-the-closet atheist because in the 50s we had the Cold War mentality where communism was equated with atheism. And, of course, she was hated because people feared atheists. In the months after the O'Hares disappear in 1995, speculation on what has become of them runs wild. When somebody like that goes missing, people develop all of these scenarios that are incredible. Some of the speculations were that the Vatican had hired hitmen to kill them, 
that Madeline was dying and they were going off someplace secret to bury her so no Christers would be praying over her body. The story many believe is that Madeline, who is 76 and suffers from diabetes and a heart condition, had been scheming with Robin and John to secretly retire abroad. They were preparing to actually leave the country. They had moved approximately $600,000 to New Zealand and they were making arrangements to leave the country. Without evidence of foul play, this theory is apparently good enough for the Austin Police Department. We can't take it upon ourselves to go find her just because we don't know where she is. If she wants to uh, disappear, she can disappear. Yet, items found at the O'Hare's home by one of their employees, passports, Madeline's prescriptions, and pets, suggest that the O'Hare's had left hastily, without much preparation. There were a lot of oddities that didn't make sense. They left their dogs behind. By all accounts, Madeline, John, and Robin loved those dogs. They took the dogs with them to work. They took them everywhere, but they left them in order to disappear and never be found. That wasn't right. In late 1995, the whereabouts of the infamous atheist, her son and granddaughter, is a deepening mystery. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Nothing is more personal or specific than our health and well-being. So it's really weird to me that most weight loss plans are one-size-fits-all. Noom, however, is different. Noom understands that every single person is unique, so they build personal plans to meet individual needs. I appreciate that Noom is designed this way, that it meets each person where they're at, and that its approach is based in psychology and biology. And not only that, this approach is grounded in science. Noom has published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about it. Noom also wants you to enjoy food so it doesn't restrict what you can eat or shame you for treating yourself. I actually overheard a conversation about Noom at my local cafe the other day. Both diners were talking about all these foods they've discovered that they really love thanks to recipes they found on the Noom app. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. 
Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. October 1995. Madeline Murray O'Hare, her son John, and granddaughter Robin, all well-known atheists, are missing. Police believe the trio has executed a secret plan to flee the country. But some evidence suggests the O'Hares left in sudden haste. At their Austin home, passports, Madeline's medications, and their three beloved dogs have been left behind. And it really didn't look like a well-planned exit. So that kind of cast doubt on the, on the voluntary disappearance. Months go by without any word from the O'Hares. Well, frankly, hardly anybody noticed they were missing, and many were probably glad they were gone locally. For a while, the case of the three missing atheists appears to be forgotten. A year after the O'Hares disappear, John McCormick, a reporter with the San Antonio Express News, is assigned a story on the O'Hares. My editor said, you know, it's been about a year since Madeline Murray O'Hare disappeared. Why don't you go see what's up? And I'm thinking, I didn't even know she was gone. She'd become that obscure. So we published a story written by me about how this $620,000 had disappeared from various atheist funds about the same time the O'Hares had disappeared. And it, it didn't draw any conclusions. It just said, big mystery. Not long after the article appears, John McCormick gets a call from a private investigator named Tim Young. And Tim said, you know, I find people for a living. This is what I do. I can find the O'Hares. And uh, he said, I'd like to work with you. I thought it would be a feather in my cap. I thought uh, once I found these three people, it would be uh, something that would help my career. Honestly, I thought this was not going to be a problem to find these people at all. I was wrong. Without any help from law enforcement, Young and McCormick launched the first real search for the O'Hares. When you're looking for a person who's purposely trying to hide, you don't necessarily look for the person. You look for the plan. In that plan, they made mistakes, and it's those mistakes that lead you to the missing person every single time. In this particular case, we didn't have just one person. We had three. We got tips. We got leads that put them everywhere on the map, from Germany to India, Mexico, Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand. So we were chasing down a lot of loose ends. And we started with financial records, phone records, anything that would trace where they're going, anything that would help us determine what the plan was. At first, the $620,000 that the O'Hares had transferred to a New Zealand bank suggests that they had fled there. Just because the funds were in New Zealand didn't mean that they had planned on disappearing and never being found again. Nothing else backed up that story except for the money. And the more that we dug, the more that we realized there was no plan to disappear. There were no preparations made. And no matter who you are, if you're rich, you're poor, whoever, you have to make those preparations in order to disappear. And they didn't do it. To Young and McCormick, the dogs, passports, prescriptions, even $270 worth of new groceries that the O'Hares left behind 
suggest that they hadn't fled at all. If that's true, then where have they gone? The first thing you want to do is you want to look at their phone bills. You want to know who they're calling. When we first got the phone bill, none of it made sense. They were calling jewelry stores, coin dealers, banks, lending institutions like American Express. They were getting cash advances. The La Fonda restaurant and catering, Blockbuster Video, all these calls had originated from San Antonio cell towers, so we knew that they were in San Antonio someplace. Analyzing phone records from September 1995 allows Young and McCormick to place the O'Hare's calls along Fredericksburg Road in northwest San Antonio. There was about a, a one-mile grid that we had the O'Hare's in, so we knew that they were in that square mile somewhere. John Murray's cell phone number also appears in the classifieds of the San Antonio Express News, advertising his own Mercedes for a bargain price. Why leave Austin, go to San Antonio, and put your car up for sale for $5,000 less than Blue Book? American Atheist board member Ellen Johnson also remembers John Murray actually calling her to request blank checks be sent to a Dropbox outside San Antonio. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to send you blank checks. But, you know, he had reassured me so much that I eventually did send them. Again, we were getting suspicious, but what were we going to do about it? We were still in touch with them. I don't know, what would anybody else have done? A year after the O'Hares were last heard from, McCormick and Young hit the streets of San Antonio, trying to retrace their steps. We started visiting some of the places that they were calling and showing photographs and pictures. And nobody really seemed to recognize them. We, we didn't get any hits whatsoever until we met Corey Tickner. We figured out that some of the phone calls had gone to Corey Tickner's jewelry shop. Tim and I went to the jewelry shop together. We approached Mr. Tickner and we explained who we were. He immediately referred us to his lawyer. He just reached into his pocket and handed us his attorney's business card and said, you need to talk to my attorney. And McCormick and I looked at each other and we knew we had something big. Tickner's attorney admits that in September of 1995, John Murray came into the shop to arrange the purchase of over $600,000 worth of gold coins, roughly the amount that the IRS believes the O'Hares have siphoned from atheists' accounts and sent to New Zealand. Tickner and others also offer a troubling observation of John Murray. According to eyewitness accounts, John was very disheveled. You know, a lot of growth on his beard, and uh, quite honestly, they said that he smelled. The day after John Murray receives all 100 pounds of gold coins from the shop, his cell phone goes dead, and the trio is never heard from again. I'm not going to stop what I'm doing, no matter what the dangers, because you see, I'm right, and the 75% are wrong. In 1995, the celebrity atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare disappears, along with her son John and her granddaughter Robin. 
Three years later, Private Eye Tim Young and reporter John McCormick are virtually the only two on the case. When you're the only two people out there that are looking for somebody, it's not a job anymore, it's more of a responsibility. Records of John Murray's cell phone put the three in Northwest San Antonio the month before they disappear. The reasons behind these activities, from ordering takeout food to buying half a million dollars in gold coins, are still a mystery. Every time you get a new piece of information based on the phone bill, it just added more questions. You get one piece of information which would give you 10 more questions to answer. Then, out of the blue, McCormick and Young get the break they've been hoping for. Sometime in June of 98, I got a call while seated at my desk here in the newsroom, and it was from a guy that didn't want to give me his name. And he started out by saying that he knew what had happened to the O'Hares and that he, someone else had disappeared with them. The caller, who eventually identifies himself as Bob Fry, claims that his brother Danny was somehow involved in the O'Hare's disappearance and that Danny had been staying in Austin with a man named David Walters, who used to work for the O'Hare's. So that's the name that we get, Walters, and it rings a bell. So we go back and go back and figure out, you know what, that's Waters he's talking about because we knew of a David Waters that used to work for Madeline. Investigators can't locate Danny Fry, but they easily find former atheist employee David Waters. He is still living in Austin and speaking publicly about the O'Hares. David Waters is a highly intelligent guy. And early on, David Waters managed to convince a reporter for Vanity Fair that the O'Hares had gone to New Zealand and he provided them documents which indicated the O'Hares had money down there and they thought about going down there, but he was trying to control the story. David Waters began working at American Atheists in 1994 as a typesetter. Clever and outgoing, Madeline quickly promoted him to office manager, where he had access to bank accounts and other records. But the O'Hares had overlooked the background of their new employee. Robin hired him, and there was no way to know his criminal record, which dated back to his childhood. She didn't know. So we take a real hard look at David Waters, and that's when things really started coming together. He had a criminal record. His criminal record involved murder. The 53-year-old David Waters committed his first major crime at 17, beating another teenager to death with a fence post. In 1994, the year before the O'Hares disappear, they leave town on business, briefly leaving Waters in charge of the office. David just cleaned the bank accounts out and absconded. Well, when they returned, David had shut the office down and he had stolen $54,000 from their bank accounts. Although Waters is eventually convicted of theft, Madeline becomes enraged when he gets off with just probation. She takes revenge the only way she knows how, skewering him with words in the atheist newsletter. She ripped him apart. She talked about how he had tied his mother up. She talked about how he had beat her with a broom. She talked about David Waters' criminal past of murder. Three years later, the smooth-talking ex-con is unofficially speaking for Madeline O'Hare, 
convincing some people that his archenemy has fled the country. He also wrote a 200-page book about the O'Hare's disappearance in which he laid out the whole scenario of them going to New Zealand. So he was really setting up the press to go the wrong way the whole time. Working behind the scenes, Young and McCormick set their sights on David Waters. They discover that he met and befriended Danny Fry in Naples, Florida. Besides being a father and family man, Danny also has a reputation as a heavy drinker. No doubt, Danny was a shady character, okay? Phone records from August and September 1995 put Waters and Fry together in Texas. Records also show that Waters had been making repeated calls to another friend, an old prison buddy named Gary Carr. When we came across Gary Carr's name, I started doing everything I could to find out if Gary Carr was with Waters and with Fry at very key, crucial times. While I was doing that, McCormick was looking into Gary Carr's criminal background, and it turned out to be pretty scary. In the summer of 1995, Gary Carr is fresh out of prison, having served 21 years for kidnapping, armed robbery, and rape. Soon, phone records also put him in Texas, in the company of David Waters and Danny Fry. Holy is it kidnapping and murder that we're talking about? Is that what happened to the O'Hares? Suddenly, the O'Hares' unexplained movements through San Antonio in the weeks before they disappeared comes into ominous new focus. We still have our square mile grid where the O'Hares were, and then all of a sudden we started putting waters in that same square mile, Fry in that same square mile, and Gary Carr in that same square mile. But in 1998, the three O'Hares are no longer the only missing people in this case. Danny Fry's family hasn't heard from him since early October 1995, about the same time the O'Hares disappeared. If there's anybody that knows what happened to the O'Hares that may talk, it's going to be Danny Fry. And this was a family man. Danny Fry had a conscience, and we thought it was awfully interesting that the one guy that's probably going to talk has also fallen off the face of the earth. While McCormick and Young believe that Danny Fry holds the key to solving this crime, their working relationship is about to hit a wall. Tim really didn't want me to write the story at that point. He and I had a real difference of opinion because a private investigator's responsibility, if he knows a crime is committed, is to go to the authorities. A newspaper reporter's responsibility is to write the story. It hit me. I, you can't write an article about these people. You can't tell everybody we know who did it. They're going to take off. They're going to run. I, I, I'm going to the cops. It's 1998, and there has been no official investigation into the strange disappearance, three years earlier, of Madeline Murray O'Hare, her son John, and granddaughter Robin. Now, journalist John McCormick and private eye Tim Young believe that David Waters, a former employee of the O'Hares, has masterminded and gotten away with kidnapping, extorting, and murdering them. 
the harder we looked at waters, the more things started coming in to focus. Sure enough, waters was in San Antonio the entire month the O'Hares were there. We found that he purchased a Cadillac for $8,000 cash. David Waters' girlfriend bought a $3,500 truck. Neither one of them were working. Tracing calls among all three suspected kidnappers and their girlfriends, Tim Young also discovers the Warren Inn, the San Antonio hideout where he thinks the O'Hares were kept. After nearly two years on the case, both investigators think they finally have enough evidence to make a move. We got the guys. We know who did it. We don't know exactly how they did it, but we know that they took them from here because we put them all here. We know that they took them to this place because they were all here. But for Young, the PI, and McCormick, the reporter, breaking this story risks breaking up their partnership. Well, I'm thinking I've got enough to go to the police department right now, and I think it's a pretty prime time to no, do it. You started out, you were working with me. You came to me. Oh, come on. This is a different story. We're talking about a missing person at that time. That I can handle. That's my feel. This is different. You can't compare them. Well, you're not a murder investigator either, Tim, you know? You're damn straight. That's why I can't wait to contact the police department and have somebody get off their ass and do something and arrest these scumbags for killing them. So Tim really didn't want me to write the story at that point. I felt Tim wasn't giving me information that he should, and he felt I was being reckless in writing this story. So that that point, we parted paths. That's when we had our divorce. I wrote a story, mapping it all out. Tim went to the Austin PD. On August 13th, 1998, Tim Young sends a report to the Austin Police Department describing in detail how the O'Hares were kidnapped, robbed, and probably murdered. I literally thought within minutes I'd be getting a phone call. Nothing. Next day, nothing. I call. I talk to the detective in charge. And uh, you could tell that he hadn't even read but maybe half of it. And he basically laughed in my face. It was at that point that I contacted the FBI. But the FBI also ignores Tim Young's report. It's sad to say, but McCormick had said law enforcement wasn't going to do anything about it. And McCormick was right. On August 16, 1998, the San Antonio Express News runs John McCormick's article. Once again, the case was kind of at a dead end. The Express News had published a story pointing the finger at David Waters. Essentially, we said, this is the guy who did it, but we can't prove it. Although the partnership between Young and McCormick has cooled, they keep collaborating on the case. Their diligence pays off when a wire story out of Dallas about an unsolved murder three years before catches McCormick's eye. In early October 1995, Dallas County detectives respond to a gruesome scene. A mutilated body has been found beside the Trinity River. They actually decapitated the head and cut off the hands. By removing the head and hands, the killer or killers have successfully hidden the identity of their victim. When you work a homicide, that's the first thing you have to do is identify the body. And we weren't getting there. And um, we worked on this for several months, and then we kind of had to put it on the shelf for a while. Dallas County detectives were stuck. Each year, on the anniversary of the body's discovery, 
They put the story on the newswire, hoping to generate a lead. Finally, they had one. So you had an anonymous, middle-aged, white male body without head and hands dumped there the same weekend the O'Hares and Danny Fry disappeared. So I thought, why not? Could this headless, handless corpse be Danny Fry? John McCormick uh, called me directly and he said, I think I know who your body is. Well, three years into this, I thought, I'm going to take anything I can get. A DNA sample taken from Bob Fry confirms that the body belongs to his brother, Danny. The discovery of a suspected kidnapper, murdered, jumpstarts the stalled case. And once you have Danny Fry up there on the Trinity River without his head in his hands, there's no more hope that the O'Hares are alive anyway. The only question is, where are the bodies? The day before his next article appears, John McCormick calls David Waters. Mr. Waters. Yeah. John McCormick. I work for the Express News down in San Antonio. Yeah. Hey, I'm looking into a story here about a fellow who disappeared a couple of years ago in San Antonio. Uh, may have known him, a Danny Fry. Were you doing anything in San Antonio that month of September 95? Mm, not that I know of. Did not you buy a car there? White Eldorado, maybe? Yeah, I bought a car once, yeah. In San Antonio? Yeah. You worked for the, the atheist there, too. Is that is that so? Were you once uh, working for the O'Hares? I had one time, yeah. Well, when was the last time you saw them? Because that's another big mystery. Do you have any idea what happened to the O'Hares? <laughs> well, I've got, yeah, I've got a good idea. Do you think they, they're sitting out there somewhere having a good time? or? Well, I have every reason to believe that, yes, sir. You know, they uh, disappeared right about the time as Danny Fry's, the way I understand it. And there's some people wonder if there's a connection. Well, I don't know what to tell you there. Well, let me ask you straight out. Sure. Did you have anything to do with the uh, disappearance of either Danny Fry or the O'Hares? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, well, I'll say this. I didn't find it much of a mystery. Boy, I think that they were kicked back someplace. Uh, very comfortable and having chuckles. But the next day, the article was in the paper, and, you know, all hell broke loose. And the FBI got excited, and it's just a matter of time before people started getting arrested. Any comment, David? Uh, you say anything, David? An atheist yeah. is a person who has absolute confidence yeah. in their fellow men and in their own ability. In early 1999, a journalist and private eye have cracked one of the century's most sensational missing persons cases. With the evidence from Tim Young and John McCormick, federal agents confront David Waters' accomplice, Gary Carr, in Michigan. It doesn't take much time for Carr to confirm their suspicions. He said Waters had hired him, and uh, he, he did what Waters told him. He didn't ask any questions, but he went on to say that he did believe they were dead, that Waters had said he had killed them, but he didn't know how he had done it. Gary Carr may have rolled over quickly, but getting the mastermind behind this crime to cooperate would be different. Armed with a search warrant, federal agents raid David Waters' home. We found a gun, ammunition, we found products belonging to the atheist organization, documents, books, things that David Waters should have never been in possession of. 
It's incriminating evidence. But it's not enough to arrest Waters for kidnapping and murder. Instead, Waters, a prior felon, is charged with illegal possession of a firearm. We were not ready to go to trial on the O'Hare's disappearance at that point. And we did not have as good a case against David Waters. David was smart enough to cover his tracks. He put Gary out front on everything. Gary rented vans, hotels, cars. David Waters' name wasn't on anything. Soon, though, a prison informant and Waters' former girlfriend are talking to the FBI. As testimony mounts against him, and as he faces years in prison on illegal guns and other charges, Waters finally agrees to a plea bargain. Here was a man who at that time was 54 years old, and we felt pretty confident that he would be in prison for the remainder of his life. Looking at hard time in a Texas state prison, Waters angles to serve his sentence in a more comfortable federal penitentiary. Part of that deal was that he had to give a full confession as to what happened during this crime spree. For four straight days, FBI agent Donna Cowling and other authorities grill Waters. In his testimony, the events of his 1995 kidnapping scheme unfold in chilling detail. After kidnapping the O'Hares at gunpoint, Waters, Fry, and Carr drive them from Austin to San Antonio, confining them at the Warren Inn. Here, the kidnappers lay low until the O'Hares can empty their bank accounts, including some $600,000 from a New Zealand bank. With the O'Hares' cash, Waters plans to have John Murray purchase the untraceable gold coins, but the overseas transfer of funds takes an entire month far longer than Waters expects. During that month, a bizarre intimacy between kidnappers and victims evolves. Now, David Waters, one of the smart things he did was he didn't deal with Madeline, he dealt with John. David was able to establish a rapport with John. As strange as that seems, I believe that John Murray trusted David Waters. So during that 30 days, he's stringing along poor John, day after day after day until he can finally get the gold. Now, during this time, John was allowed to, to come and go as he wanted. He went to a lot of places. The, the great mystery was why, if he's going to banks by himself, why didn't he go straight to the police or call the police? There's no really reasonable explanation. John Garth Murray was a follower. He took orders from his mother, and he was comfortable in the role of of being a person who was told what to do. Somehow, Waters was able to persuade him that if, if you cooperate, it'll all end up okay. We just want the money, when that was never gonna happen. When the bulk of the O'Hare's money finally arrives from New Zealand, John Murray is sent to purchase half a million dollars in gold coins. Those gold coins, we believe, were picked up the day the O'Hare's were murdered. Once David and Gary and Danny had the gold coins in their possession, they no longer had a need for the O'Hares. According to Waters' testimony, Madeline became very uneasy that afternoon, but John reassured her that they would soon be free. If the O'Hares had been let go, all hell would have broken loose from Madeline's rage on Waters. If you think about it, there's absolutely no way that you can kidnap Madeline Murray O'Hare and then let her go. That night, with the gold in their hands, 
Waters and Carr live up to their murderous reputations. Waters had to separate the O'Hares. The first person that they killed was John. They put a belt around his neck, and while the two held him down, it was twisted around his neck until he finally asphyxiated and died. Next, according to Waters' testimony, was Madeline and Robin. Madeline and Robin were facing each other. David Waters taking Madeline and Gary Carr taking Robin, and again with the belts, killed them. The bodies are rolled up in bedspreads, loaded into a cargo van, and driven north, back to Austin, where Waters plans for their grim disposal. At a self-storage facility, Waters claims that he and Danny Fry both offer Gary Carr an extra $25,000 if he'll do the dirty work. While Waters and Fry stand guard outside, Gary Carr dismembers the O'Hares one by one and stuffs them into 55-gallon drums. The kidnapping, murder, and gore is getting to Danny Fry. Danny started to become concerned. In conversations with Danny's fiance at the time, we've confirmed that his whole tone changed. He went from a happy-go-lucky, gregarious, honey, I'm gonna come back with all this money kind of guy to a very solemn, sad fellow. When the grisly job is done, David Waters improvises his next murder. He tells Carr and Fry they need to drive to Dallas and look for a place to dump the O'Hares. Waters admitted that uh, Danny Fry, because of his drinking and his tendency to maybe talk more than he should have when his lips were loose, that they felt that uh, he was expendable and, and they got rid of him. In a wooded area outside Dallas, David Waters executes Danny Fry. To prevent police from identifying the body, Gary Carr removes Danny's head and hands and takes them with him. The next day, Waters and Carr drive to a remote part of Texas Hill Country to permanently dispose of the O'Hares. Waters and Carr dump the O'Hares' remains into a shallow grave then burn them for good measure. Six years after the crime, David Waters, desperate to serve out his jail time in the relative comforts of federal prison, plays his last card. But part of the deal that we made with him was that he had to show us the locations of the O'Hare's remains. On January 27, 2001, David Waters is temporarily released from prison in the hope that he can show authorities the spot where he buried the O'Hares six years ago. David Waters is one of the most intelligent individuals I've ever met. Calm, cool, collective, charismatic, but he is also a psychopath. He had no remorse for killing the O'Hares, for torturing them. He was someone that every one of us should have been afraid of. 
The search for the body of missing atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare and two of her relatives was centered again today on a ranch in South Texas, about 120 miles from San Antonio. When the first bones started to surface, it was very surreal. It was like watching an anthropological dig. It was evident that these were the O'Hares based on clothing, based on a hip bone, based on watches that were, you know, hooked to the remains. And it was very sad. Danny Fry's skull, with a bullet hole in the back, is also found in the grave. As investigators' final questions are unearthed in Texas Hill Country, they are left to wonder about the origins of this tragic crime and the deadly clash between David and Madeline. When Madeline met David, what we believe happened was that David was able to use his charismatic personality. He became an office manager. He ran the office efficiently. It wasn't until after she fired him that she actually realized the cruelty that lied within Mr. Waters. My feeling about the whole case is you had these two alpha personalities and you had some really, really bad personal chemistry here. And it wasn't really so much about stealing the 600,000 as it was who's gonna have the last laugh. David Waters was the mastermind and he's been credited with, oh, he's a genius and he almost got away with murder. And to me, I don't see it that way. David Waters didn't have to come up with the perfect plan to get away with kidnapping and murder. All he needed were the perfect victims. You think about it, nobody looked for these folks. That's the perfect victim. Ironically, David Waters never got to enjoy the gold he so patiently stole. Not long after he stashed the $600,000 in coins in a self-storage unit, it was burglarized a random break-in by another group of thieves. In the winter of 2003, after serving three years in federal prison, David Waters dies of lung cancer. His accomplice, Gary Carr, is currently serving two concurrent life terms for conspiracy to commit robbery and extortion. Today, Madeline, John, and Robin are buried in unmarked graves near Austin. One shouldn't forget that even though Madeline Marie O'Hare was a, a vulgar, loud person, she was also very much right about the issues. She was a person who was involved with a pivotal lawsuit that established the constitutionality of the separation of church and state, which I hold to be one of the fundamental planks of, of our democracy. Whether you liked her or not, whether you believed in her cause or not, the O'Hare family was a family. And it took a toll because for me, a family, a mother, a son, and a granddaughter had been kidnapped. There were three human lives that were taken as victims, and they died a horrible death. No one should die in this manner. Thank you. 
Dan and Nancy reside in the peaceful suburbs just outside of Portland, where they are living out their golden years. Their marriage spans over two decades and is seen as a pillar of the community. But when Dan is found dead in his classroom, Nancy finds herself at the center of a murder case that could be ripped from the pages of her novels. Binge all episodes of Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.